Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of Golf Course Industry Magazine. Today on the podcast, I go off the course with Chris Michelson. Chris is the Superintendent at Onika Ridge Golf Course in White Bear Lake, Minnesota. Thermometers at his course were hovering around 6 degrees. That is Fahrenheit, not Celsius, when we talked last week, which... Six degrees seems like the perfect temperature to talk about various outdoor pursuits like most golf course superintendents and many Minnesotans. Chris enjoys the outdoors, and he has started to invest a little more time and a little more effort into them. Chris already makes his own arrows. He plans to make his own bow this year or next year, time permitting. It's not like he has nothing going on. And after his dad let him borrow his boat not too long ago, he's thinking about buying a boat and maybe even making his own rod. It'll be quite obvious uh, that I know very little about hunting and fishing. I at one point called fletching on an arrow feathers, but I remembered that arrows go in a quiver. Chris does, though, know plenty about hunting and fishing. I enjoy talking with him. I hope you enjoy listening to him. We'll get going to the conversation in just a minute. Before we get to that, though, a quick word from the sponsor of Off the Course, AquaAid Solutions. Excalibur might just be the most famous fictional sword, immortalized in myth and, of course, sheathed in stone. The modern Excalibur is something else. It's a new, next-generation, rapid-response soil surfactant from our friends at AquaAid Solutions. Their Excalibur delivers rapid infiltration and consistent dry-down, and it helps your turf achieve both consistent hydration and superior rehydration. There's a difference. All you need is four ounces for every thousand square feet for your initial application early in the growing season. Then either an ounce and a half or two ounces every 12 to 14 days or three to four ounces every 28 to 30 days and at least an eighth of an inch of water to deliver Excalibur to the soil profile. For best results, use Excalibur over a full season program. For more information about Excalibur, check out AquaAid Solutions at www.aquaaidsolutions. That's A-Q-U-A-A-I-D solutions.com. You can also follow them on Twitter at solutions for turf That's Solutions, the number four, turf. After a very quick break, Chris Michelson of Onika Ridge Golf Course. Chris, welcome on into the podcast. Welcome on into Off the Course. How you doing? What's going on up in Minnesota? Um, well, it's good to be on a, your podcast. Uh, it's nice, balmy six degrees, and <laughs> we're just knocking out the equipment and getting ready for the upcoming spring. And obviously working on getting staff, which based off the article I did for you in the magazine it's definitely coming in slower than other years so that is a challenge everywhere for everybody you if folks didn't read and and, and we'll get into some of your off-course interests here in a minute but if folks did not read the january numbers to know package the former state of the industry survey and story package uh you were quoted in there you have 
really two neighborhoods that you're able to draw a lot of high school and college students from. Not as successful right now, not as many kids riding their bikes over in, in six-degree weather. No, yeah, and I, I think it's maybe it's just, maybe I'm just expecting it too, too early for them to start thinking about it because Fair. they don't get done the school until June. So maybe just give it a month and maybe they'll start getting anxious to get in, hopefully. Well, I hope it works out for you, and, and obviously hope it works out for everybody. Labor is number one, number two, number three, maybe number four, number five problems as well for everybody in the industry. It's always a challenge, and, and more so this year. Yeah, yeah we, we were at a, a shop tours event for our local chapter, and that was one of the a municipal guy, even uh, in Woodbury, just surrounded by houses and probably three different schools, and he even brought the question up about where do you guys find people? And this is a guy who's Woodbury, Minnesota, and that's a big town. Well, you're not too far away from Minneapolis and St. Paul in White Bear Lake. You, it, probably not much more than, what, 20, 30 minutes? It's about 20 minutes. Yeah, so, I mean, you're close. With it being six degrees up there in White Bear Lake right now, I wanted to talk with you in the winter, but I, we, I don't think we could have picked a colder stretch of days here to talk about this. I don't think I've talked with anybody about outdoors interests on off the course in two and a half years of this podcast and when we met virtually at the Syngenta Business Institute a couple months ago you always have to introduce yourself everybody who attends you always have to introduce yourself and and drop some some fun facts about yourself there was one superintendent who is an off-ice official for the NHL and has been for 17 years there's one who attended this past year whose side business is uh, bar hopping bike tours, uh, giving bike tours to drunk people in, in St. Louis. You are a, I'm guessing, longtime outdoorsman, but you, this is the jumping off point for this whole podcast. You make your own arrows. How did you even get into this? This is a very specific activity, I feel like. Yeah, my dad, he, when I was, so I started just like kind of your good old small-town Wisconsin boy. When you hit 12 years old, you went hunting. And eventually started getting into bow hunting a little bit. And my dad, he was he had, he had started with a compound, and then he went traditional. So that's your, just your regular recurve or longbow. And he's, I don't even know where he started picking it up. And he just, he started making his own arrows. And then I, it was just something I tried once. And I'm like, well, this is, it's enjoyable. I mean, it's, it takes, I find it as a, kind of a stress reliever. Because it it kind of gets your mind moving a little bit. Just kind of different patterns, different stuff to try and do. And so, yeah, I mean, it just, it just went from trying it one time and all of a sudden it's just, bang it just kind of stuck with me and he he actually stepped away from it and i think i took it over from him that's good so your dad's name is jim so your dad introduces you to hunting when you're 12 were you 12 when he introduced you to bow hunting and to arrow making as well or was that a little later uh that was a little later that was, that was probably 15 16 somewhere in there when i started doing that and then the bow hunting kind of, I would say the, the hunting part of it was a little later on. I would say maybe 
Well, we call we call them bow shoots. I don't know if there's another name, an official name for them, but basically there's just archery clubs. Or a lot of times they do them at just rod and guns around the state. They'll set up just 3D targets throughout the woods. It's kind of like like if you were hunting, like they'll set up a a deer kind of half behind a tree. So basically you just walk through the woods on a obviously it's a preset path, but you and you just you shoot the targets and there's scoreable rings on each target and that determines your score and then you turn your scorecard in it's it's almost it's almost in essence like golf a little bit you turn your scorecard yeah. in and the lowest score wins basically and it's, it seems like now they're a lot more open to kind of everybody but back when we first started there seemed like there was a lot more traditional only bow shoots where like the there compounds, no crossbows allowed. So it's just just traditional. And I mean, you can you can still at the bow shoots now. You can still use a traditional boa, but they open it up to more people just to keep more people interested. And you never know, somebody that's at one of these bow shoots might see your bow and see your arrows and be like, oh, that's kind of cool. And you might actually get a compound shooter to switch to traditional. I was going to save the bow talk for a little later in our conversation, but I, th- I feel like we can circle back to the arrows here in a few minutes. You, you've been talking about bows enough here. The other, the other thing that you mentioned, you haven't made one yet, but you do soon want to make your own bow. Now, a compound bow, is, that's, that's something that's manufactured. That's something that you would buy, but you're making your own bow out of, I'm assuming, wood and, and maybe some... I'm not. I'm not even sure what kind of other materials you would use. I'm not much of a hunter, if you can't tell. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean the basics of it. I mean, I I just had a custom longbow made. Okay. And that's that's not even. I mean, that's a direction I could go. So I mean, that's a little bit more. I'll say involved. Whereas there's some. It's called a, a self-bow. So basically you just take a, a, a wood stave, which is basically a, a tree that's cut into, I don't know, quarters or six or just depending on how big the stave is, and you basically shave it down and you basically end up with just a, a straight, basically a straight stick. And then that's, you shape it to the bow you want. It's, it's, an, it's in essence a long bow, but they call it a self-bow because it's, you're making it. It's not, I guess that's the best way I could describe it. Whereas, like, my custom one, I mean, it's it's made up of, like, the guy I talked to. I mean, he only makes a, a few custom ones a year, and then he makes some for some uh, events throughout the country. But his, I mean, he, he shapes it. Like, he shapes the handle. The limbs have a little bit of a curve to them, so it's more of a reflex longbow. And... That one's consists of it's different. I mean, that one's different types of wood that you're gluing together. You have laminates, the glass laminates, to kind of help make it what it is. Whereas a self bow, I mean, it's truly you take the stick and cut it down to what you want. I mean, you can add sinew, which is basically like deer ligaments, to protect it and kind of give it its the the snap, but it's it's the self bow is the true essence. I mean, it'd be like if you were stuck out in the woods, <laughs> you cut you cut a bow down and make it yourself. Now you're 
pretty pretty safe to say you're pretty busy between Onika Ridge and and obviously everything that you do there in the winter as well. What is the timeline? Do you have a timeline for for making your own bow? Is it going to be 2022 or is it going to have to be a project that waits a little longer? It could start this year. It's kind of one of those things you might get bored or find some time someday and you start it and then you put it to the side for a month and then you come back to it and I don't, I don't think it's one of those things that you don't necessarily have to rush. You can kind of just, I mean, you never know. You might get halfway through with it and say, oh, I don't like this one, and then start over. So, yeah, it's, I would probably like to start this this year, but it's, it's kind of one of those things you just, it, it, I think it, it kind of has to hit, hit you at the right time and hit your mood because it's not just like, oh, I'm just going to rush through this. I'm going to take it slow and do it right. I mean, there's there's something meditative to it. You you likened, you know, going through the the artificial targets in the woods, sort of to a golf course of sorts. And golf is a meditative activity. I feel like working on a bow, especially the arrows as well, but probably working on the bow a little bit more is really a meditative activity. You can kind of lose yourself in it and and, and focus on that, but also focus on other things as well. I mean, same with the arrows. I mean, I find when I make the arrows, it's a very it's a, it's a, I'll just say it's a calming, like, I mean, you could be stressed to the max about a whole bunch of stuff, and as soon as you start what they call cresting an arrow, I mean, that's where you start putting the little painted lines and the patterns and stuff onto the arrow. I mean, it's like, yeah, you just, you just start focusing on, on the paint that you're putting down, and then your mind just goes completely into it. I mean, you just completely go, you let everything else go, and you just, put your whole mind into that. Let's talk a little bit about the process of making an arrow, because cresting is not a term that I have heard. Like, in, in, in my mind, you, know, you, you have your arrowhead, you have your piece of wood, your stick, and, and maybe feathers on the end. Now, this is, this is very rudimentary. I'm sure this is not at all close to, to what you're doing today. What is the process, Chris, to actually make an arrow? Uh, the process, I mean... So there's there's a few traditional archery shops around the country. There's actually one decently within a couple hours of my house, and I've seen them at some bow shoots. So that's usually so you buy the you you're basically buying a raw shaft that already I mean they're already they're already the shafts are already basically pre-formed into a shaft. It's not like I'm going out into the woods and cutting a stick down and <laughs> so and the, and the shafts they're they're spine weight. There's a spine weight for each shaft, and that correlates to what pound bow you're shooting. Because if your if your spine weight is wrong or too light for your bow, you got the chance of your arrow not flying right or even exploding in your face. Okay. So you you buy you buy the the shafts that are already pre-spine weighted out, and then you just start by you start by staining them, and then or sealing them with like a clear coat to protect them and then after that the the term cresting that I used basically you put it on the best way you can describe it it's it's it rotates the shaft around my da- my dad actually like he in the old days like you, you would just home make your own cresting machine you just used an old like egg beater or like a, a mixer like cake mixer and put a a chuck on the end of it and held that held the arrow and it just slowly spins the shaft around in a circle. So then you just take 
the crest, you, as it's spinning, you just take a paint, a really fine tip paintbrush or any paintbrush you want, actually, and you're just holding it against the shaft for just a little bit to get a, you're basically creating a ring around the shaft, and then different colors, different patterns. I mean, I try to, if I'm making them for myself, I'm making them for somebody, I try to make that cresting pattern, I won't say specific, but it kind of means something. Like I made some for my brother when he was in the National Guard, so I made him some red, white, and blue ones. I made my dad some, and then like the crest, usually I try to make the ring signify something. Like my dad, there's five people in our family, so I'd usually try to five rings somewhere in into that pattern for the five people in the family. So in the way, that's the way I kind of describe it for myself, is I, I try to incorporate little hidden meanings or something into them. I mean, obviously I'm the only one that truly knows what the meaning is, but <laughs> it's just kind of that little hidden, hidden thing I do to make the arrows specific to the person I'm making them for. And then after you're done cresting, you kind of do one more coat of sealant over that because, I mean, if you miss a target or something, there's a chance that the cresting can hit the target and if that sealant over top of the cresting just helps protect that paint from getting rubbed off as it hits something. And then after that, you just, you, then you, you fletch, so you use the word feathers, but the correct term for, yep. for, uh, Traditional arrows is fletching. As soon as you said fletching, I'm like, that is exactly the term. I know that. I write trivia on the yeah. side. I should have remembered that. Feathers. Yeah. So, yeah, so then you, you put the fletching on. So you just, there's specific jigs. So depending on if you're right or left-handed, they make a right and left-handed jig. And there's actually feathers that you buy that are from either the left or the right wing of the bird. And that correlates how the arrow is going to spin. So generally, if I think if you're right-handed, you go, I think you go left twist. Uh, we go, it's called left twist. So it's it's the opposite of your hand because I think just the way that it's coming off the bow, I've never really gotten too deep into that, but because I've always just ordered what I've ordered or based off of what my dad ordered. And then you can put, I mean, there's so many different types of tips you can put on them. Uh, usually you just they're kind of glue on, so you, you basically it's almost like a pencil sharpener. You just sharpen the end, and you you glue the tip on. Usually you just use field points. I mean, you got your broadhead tips. Um, I want to try. It, it would kind of go with the self bow. You'd kind of do it the old, like really old way. You'd kind of split the end of the shaft instead of just tapering it and gluing something on. You'd split the end of the shaft and actually. In essence, an arrowhead, obviously, it wouldn't be a true stone arrowhead. They just make metal ones that you kind of fit down into the shaft, and then you'd use that sinew to wrap around the the broadhead to hold the broadhead on. So it would be more of a true, a nat- more of a natural. So that would be kind of the arrow I would make with the stealth bow, just because they're kinda, they'd be kind of both handmade. There are a fair number of steps in this process, what is the timeline to make one arrow, do you think? Especially now that you're, you're well into making them. Uh, at this point, you know, you're, you're probably, what, 15 years, 20 years into to making arrows. It's a little quicker, but what is, the, yeah. what is the timeline for you normally? 
usually, I mean, the staining process that takes, I mean, you can usually do them at batches of six at a time. That's, that's, that's just kind of, I mean, I do them at batches of sixes at a time. I mean, there's I've seen some people on some traditional archery uh, Facebook pages. I mean, they'll do them a couple dozen at a time, depending on if they're selling them to people to make them a big batch. But I'll stain them, and then usually let them sit for a little bit. So, I mean... You could, in essence, if you wanted to do it quick, you could, I mean, you could have a set of arrows done in, I don't know, a week. Whereas if you find yourself busy, I mean, you stain them, then you let them sit, and then you seal them, let them sit. And then, I mean, I, I try to take the cresting slower. Because, I mean, you'll kind of pre-design it, kind of make yourself a template on the computer, kind of see how it's going to look, and then I'll take that to this cresting jig. So you're kind of following a pattern. But, I mean, I'll, I'll take that slower. So, I mean, anywhere from a week to two to three weeks. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't try to rush it. I try to keep it slow. That way I'm not – because I've, I've done – like when I first started out, I'm like, ooh, I got I to gotta do this quick. And, I mean, they were my first ones. So, I mean, they weren't exactly my proudest ones. But I think that's where I started taking it slower was – if you, if you try to rush it, I think you're like you're you're just doing it to make them. Then you're not doing it to, for the pre- purpose of a stress reliever or a calming agent. You're just doing it to make it. So that's I that's why I, I kind of started slowing everything down and taking my time with it and truly finding what it was meaning to me to make them. Over the course of a week or two weeks or three weeks, however long you take it for a batch of six, in terms of hours, is it, does it work out to an hour, an arrow, or is it more than that if you're, if you're doing, uh, if you're doing a batch of six over, you know, a week to three weeks? The whole process, you could probably, yeah, I mean, a couple, couple hours an arrow from okay. staining to... And then when you actually take them out, you go out, you use them, what is the, and obviously every arrow is a little different, you might get a bad shaft, you might have, I don't know if weather affects it, but what is the average lifespan of an arrow once it's in the quiver and, and once you're out, you know, using it? Well, I, I, I like, you, you remember the use of the word quiver. See, <laughs> see, you said fletch yeah. and then, and then all the terminology came back in my head. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, my, my quiver, I mean, I'll tell you a little side note on that is back when we first started doing archery shoots. I don't know how he got the nickname Chicken, but he got the nickname Chicken. But he was a true, he was a true traditional archery guy. That my dad, I don't know how my dad knew him or he got to know him, just maybe from his hometown or from one of his friends. But he would be at every traditional archery shoot, and he actually made us our first leatherback, like back quiver. And I still got that same, same quiver to this day. But as going back to the lifespan of the arrows, I mean, I have don't think I've ever had an arrow go bad from age. I mean, as long as you're not, I suppose they're not as long as they're not just sitting out in the sun baking and because the, the shafts are already they already come dry, so I mean they're not. It's not like you're using a a, a wet a wet wood and then it's drying out and cracking and already they're already dry. So I was uh, and then with the, with the sealant the stain in the sealant i mean that's basically going to preserve them for well as long as i mean i think i still got some of my original ones 
Usually what makes the lifespan of an arrow not last is you miss the target and you hit a tree behind it and it'll shatter. <laughs> or you lose it. I mean, you're shooting. Especially at bow, at bow shoots, I mean, you're out in the woods. You miss your target by a little bit. It hits the back and, I mean, it goes shooting. And, I mean, you, like, you give it a look and, like, okay, I gave it 10 minutes and, okay, I chopped that one up to a loss. So, I mean, that's usually that's usually what the, the lifespan is getting destroyed or gone by most of the time by it's either getting broken or it just gets lost. Hence why you got to keep making more. <laughs> I like how you pointed out that at a bow shoot, you might look for a lost arrow for 10 minutes. You're going to look for a lost arrow, it sounds like, longer than you're going to look for a lost ball, probably because you put a lot more time and effort into making the arrow than you would into a golf ball. Yeah, I mean, for the most, I mean, my dad's taught me, you always, like, if you, if you lose an arrow, especially in the backyard, you lose an arrow, put down the bow, and go look for it right away. Because you still have it in your mind where kind of the trajectory was going. So you're like, oh, I think I saw it go by this this bush. So just if, if you overshoot and you lose one in the backyard, just drop everything and go and look for it. And it's almost the same as a bow shoot because bow shoot, you only get one arrow to per target. So hmm. it's like you, you shoot it, you miss it, hey, go look for it right away. I mean, but there's times where it, gets, it, it hits – the ground at the perfect angle that it gets underneath leaves, underneath branches, stuff like that, and it's just almost impossible to find. Because surprisingly, they go further than you think they do, even after hitting the ground. Like if you think that, oh, I it hit the ground next to this bush, so it should be right next to this bush, but it might be 10 feet past it. It just skidded underneath all the under forage. And it just came to rest, and it might you might be walking, and you might just see just that one tiny little piece of the fletching sticking out. That might be what you find it. You mentioned earlier how you can kind of lose yourself in making an arrow. I'm sure it'll be the same way when you really dive into making a bow, whether it's this year or early next year. How does all that help you, or does it help you, being a golf course superintendent? Because there is a lot of quiet time. There's a lot of meditation. There's a lot of uh, time kind of in concert in the outdoors with nature. And it feels like there's a lot of overlap, but I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm misinterpreting that. Is there a lot of help that archery and bow hunting gives you as, as a golf course superintendent? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe not so much in the making of it, okay. but just being in the outdoors, like I think, you, I think it helps you appreciate the outdoors maybe a little bit more. Like, I mean, you, like, when I first started at golf courses as a high schooler, I mean, I didn't appreciate, like, you'd be out there every morning, you'd see a sunrise or whatever, and you'd be like, oh, okay, whatever, I'm just working, blah, blah, blah. And now that I've really gotten into making my own error, and maybe and maybe it's an unconscious effect of, on, my, on my side of it that has helped me just appreciate, like, those quiet mornings you're out just, driving around on the cart and you just appreciate the morning more. I don't know. I guess I've never really thought about it that way, but maybe that's kind of what, like I said, back when I was in high school, I don't think I appreciated it as much as I do now. Sure. I mean, they, they're just, they're activities that seem to complement each other, certainly in, in being outdoors a lot and being maybe more in concert or having a deeper 
relationship with nature. I don't know. They just they seem they do seem to go together, and I know there are a lot of superintendents who, uh, certainly in in the northern parts of the country where you are, uh, who are avid outdoorsmen. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it seems. And I don't know. Maybe it, that maybe that's something to do with the winter. It just gives us gives us up here time to kind of pull back and think of something else, do something else. Besides, I mean, yeah, we're still working throughout the winter, but it's more of a more of a laid back process. So it gives you maybe that more time to think about something else. You also mentioned that you uh, you groom cross country ski trails. Is that on? The grounds is that at Onika Ridge as well. Uh yeah, one of our married to one of the owners, so he, him and his well, actually, no, she is. They're both big cross country skiers. So I mean, we've had people in the past, and he was one of them. They would just kind of come out, and they, I would just say, blazing their own trail. And this year, he bought a snowmobile, and then kind of just made he made his own homemade groomer so he would he kind of took that over i haven't done it really at all but he he created a trail kind of throughout the course and through the woods to and then anybody else that wants to can use it it might take a couple years to kind of catch on a little bit that hey we got these trails here i like how you pointed out this is not something that's really your responsibility yet to dive in and, and do all the trail grooming, but do you think yeah. it will be in the next couple of years? It, it's going to be just one more uh, one more part of your your job duties. Uh, it could be. I mean, I I wouldn't mind it. I mean, okay. it'd be just that, kind of that same thing in the morning. Hey, we just got a fresh snow. Let's go groom the trail and go through the woods. Is cross country skiing part of your outdoors? Uh, portfolio is that something that you've spent a lot of time doing or uh no not so much i mean i did it a little bit way back in high school okay it's not some i mean i could get back into it as i mean as i'm not saying that i wouldn't ever do it again but it's just i haven't guess i've really not thought about it i talked with some folks last year for another story up in canada who had kind of converted a very small percentage of their courses thanks to gps tracking to cross-country ski trails. If you do wind up grooming the trails a little bit more, do you anticipate that that maybe helps you see the course in, in different ways or, or because you'd probably be on the perimeter of a lot of the course, maybe maybe it wouldn't be as much of a, a different interpretation of the land? Uh, yeah, I don't think it would be too much of a difference. I mean, right now you look out over the course, especially we just got a nice light dusting of an inch of snow last night. Like you look out, it's just—I mean, you can—you can see the contours. It kind of gives you a cool look at the contours. They might not see when there's just grass, but I don't know. I think it just, with that white blanket, it kind of—you don't see much. You just. I know we're in the middle of winter. I hope the snow melts at some point relatively soon. But is there anything that you're looking forward to uh, this winter outdoor season, or as the weather turns, uh, spring, summer, or just? 2022 in general, whether it's continuing to, to make arrows, finishing that first bow, or, or anything else we didn't talk about, Chris? Well, since kind of it started during COVID, I went and got my own boat, and that was kind of based on oh, nice. that suggestion of my dad, because we would fish together, and we'd be out on a lake, and he's like, oh, you should get a boat like that, and he'd 
points at your nice $80,000 bass boat. And I'm like, yeah. yeah, maybe that one might be a little out of my price range, but it's not necessarily a, a bad thought. Yeah. And, I, and, and it, it kind of, it, it took me taking his boat out solo one time because he just happened to be out of town. So he's like, oh, you should just take, take my boat out and go to it. Mean, he's got a lake five miles from the house. So I took it out there one weekend when he was out of town. So I'm just like, okay, I went over, to, went over to the house and grabbed the boat and went to the lake. Well, it just happened to be nice and windy. Well, having a, just a little aluminum, your basic aluminum boat with a trolling motor in the back and one person that did just not work with wind. So it was literally that next weekend I went boat shopping and spent quite a bit of time last year fishing. And I, and I, I found that that's kind of similar to making arrows. Like, yeah, I do it for the the food aspect too, but I, I mean, I don't really even care if I catch anything. I mean, it's I'm out there on a weekend. I'm not working. I'm just letting the whole just the calm of that morning just kind of wash wash the stress of the week away and just kind of take that weekend slow and just enjoy nature. And yeah, you catch fish, you catch fish. If you don't, you don't. And that kind of goes in a little bit too of with making the bows, I've been following some professional fishermen on YouTube recently just to kind of pick up tips and tricks and stuff like that. And one of them has been mentioning about making his own rods. And my mechanic in training, he even has done it too. And I guess I never really even thought about people doing making their own rods. So you just basically buy the the rod blank and you put all the guides on you put all the, the handles and everything i mean it's it's almost it seems like a very similar process to either making an arrow or making a bow you just start with the basic raw materials and you just so i might end up kind of segueing a little bit into that too why do i get this feeling that before you're before you're done you'll have made dozens if not hundreds of arrows i feel like you're going to make more than one bow and now that you say this, I feel like you're not only going to wind up making your own rods, but I feel like at some point you're going to make a boat as well. I just, I feel like you're very ambitious in making things. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's just, it's just, I think it's just that, that calming aspect yeah. that gives you, I mean, it, it lets your, your mind just kind of wander as you're doing it. So, I mean, yeah, maybe you never know, maybe down the line you might kind of do that old Indian style canoe. You just start out with a log yeah. and... Just start carving it down to a canoe. Do you have a big garage at home? Can you do all these projects without taking up a space in the garage? Not yet. Okay. Uh, that'd be a, probably build a shed. I was gonna say now I next, next year you have to build a garage. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, my 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 younger brother he got lucky when he bought his house down near Rochester, Minnesota. Came with a nice old big. I mean, he got the full woodworking shop that the guy had and everything and he just <laughs> kind of left it all that he's like i'm done like i'm done with all the tools and you can have all whatever tools you want you can have and <laughs> so he got lucky in that aspect <laughs> well maybe but I, can, I can always yeah. i can always go down and maybe use his stuff so i was gonna say drive down to rochester hang out with him for a weekend and work on a project while you're down there yeah yeah oh, that's funny uh, before I let you go, anything else that you want to mention? Anything you want to plug or promote up at Onika Ridge or, or just anything else in general this winter? Uh, no, I mean, I think kind of said what I think needed to be said. I mean, uh, maybe just for all the people listening out there, if, you, if you've had a had a thought or a passion that maybe you 
tried once and kind of let fall down to the side, maybe give it another try. I mean, that was kind of the same. I think that's kind of how, well, I'll say even fishing, fishing started with me. Our, my grandma used to have a cabin up north. So that's kind of the only spot I fished. And after we had to sell the cabin because to basically to take the money would take care of her in her elderly age. Fishing kind of died down a little bit for me just because it, was, it wasn't as convenient or easy to go. And then when my dad found his boat and then I got my own boat, I mean, it really kind of reignited that passion for fishing. So I, it's more of just, yeah, if you found something in the past and you thought, oh, I, I was kind of good at that, and then you kind of let it die, maybe give it another try and you'll maybe be surprised on how much more you have to give to that idea. I'm always a New Year's goals, not a New Year's resolutions kind of guy, and that is a fine goal even a couple months into the, the new year. I hope people hope people listen to you and, and you know, like you said, if you have passions and they fall away, something you were good at, pick it back up. You're not too old for it. No, no, you're you're, you're never you're never too old for it. Well, Chris, this was tremendous fun. Uh, Chris Michelson, the superintendent at Onika Ridge in White Bear Lake, Minnesota. Hope to get up there at some point soon and see your shop in person wherever you're working on it, whether it's your brothers or or somewhere else, or if you've built a shed by that point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. My thanks again to Chris Michelson for taking some time to go off the course, and my thanks to all of you for listening to all the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network. New episodes of Beyond the Page, Greens with Envy, Off the Course, and Tartan Talks drop on Tuesdays, and Real Turf Techs with Trent Manning and Wonderful Women of Golf with Rick Wolfel, both now monthly series on the network, drop every other Thursday. Our February issue is online now with a great cover package by Lee Carr about what Gen Z can bring to the industry, and this is probably more important, how to recruit those younger workers and have them feel like an important part of your crew. Check out those stories and a lot more at www.golfcourseindustry.com magazine. You can read even more industry news and notes on our Fast and Firm newsletter. That's delivered every Tuesday to your email inbox. Sign up online at www.golfcourseindustry.com. Golf Course Industry is produced by Guy Cipriano and me, Matt Lowell. Our columnists are just the best. Terry Buchan, Henry DeLozier, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morgan, and Matthew Wharton. We have some fantastic regular contributors, too. Tyler Bloom, Trent Bouts, Lee Carr, Ron Furlong, Trent Manning, Judd Spicer, John Torsiello, Anthony Williams, and Rick Wolfe. Our publisher is Dave Zai. Russ Warner handles sales. Jim Blaney designs the magazine. Caitlin Sellers makes sure everything goes where it should. Christina Warner makes sure you all receive the magazine. Kelly Antle makes sure we all get paid. That's pretty important. Amanda Cafardi and Irene Sweeney help handle production and marketing. Anna Kolar, Cody Minnick, Tom Bauman, Brock Andrada, and Patrick Briol are our IT team. Our president is Chris Foster. Above all else, we could not do what we do without you. Thanks so much for listening. Straight to my lover's heart for me. No.